time together in the Word, so let's step right into that. I'll invite you to take your Bible. Turn with me to the book of First Peter in the New Testament, almost near the end of your Bible. And First Peter would come right before... Second Peter, there we go. Good job. Hey, if you need a Bible this morning, just raise your hand. We keep some in the back in case you might have got away without your Bible today. And, um, and then there's also a little note page in your bulletin. looks like this. Grab that because it has a lot of scriptures on it that we'll be, uh, we'll be referring to as we go along. And, and church family, does it ever happen for you as it does for me that our worship team sets before us a song or a hymn, beautiful and carefully chosen to enable us to be able to release our praise or our joy or our confident trust or to express our our deep gratitude to God for the things that he brings into our life. And yet as the song is, is being sung, your mind drifts. Does that ever happen to you? <laughs> yeah? <laughs> I hear laughter. <laughs> Your thoughts wander, yeah, they, they, they wander, and, and you're, in, you're in church, you're doing this thing, and your lips are moving, but you are in another place, another time zone, far from the truths that are being expressed in the song. That happens to you. That happens to me as well. Now, take, for example, this last song that we just sang, Made Alive. Were you in the song while it was being sung? Engaged with the words, with the the profound truths that were being expressed in that particular song. Were they your words? I mean, really your words articulating your heart to your Heavenly Father. Allow me to take us back to those words one more time, because here's what you just finished singing. I once was dead in sin, alone and hopeless. A child of wrath, I walked condemned in darkness. But your mercy brought new life, and in your love and kindness raised me up with Christ and made me righteous. The chorus. You have bought me back with the riches of your amazing grace and relentless love. I'm made alive forever, life forever. By your grace, I'm saved. You have bought me back with the riches of your amazing grace and relentless love. You have bought me back. You have bought me back. Was your heart connected with that truth as you sang that song? This song was written in 2013. It's only three years old. But the words, you have bought me back, are much, much older than that. Borrowed words, actually, borrowed not from another song, but from a letter written by the Holy Spirit through the pen of the Apostle Peter some 2,000 years ago. The words, you have bought me back, come right out of the passage where your Bible is open, 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 18 and 19. These two verses read like this. We'll put them on the screen for us as well. Peter says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. The word is bought back 
from the empty way of life handed down to you from your your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. You were redeemed, bought back. As we make our way this morning toward a time of celebration and remembrance around the communion table, which is before you and before me as a church family, let me ask you to meet me in these two verses for just a few moments and especially meet me at the word redeemed. Maybe you would agree with me when I say that today it seems like the word redeemed or its companion words redemption and redeemer are not words that find our, their way into our speech all that much. We only really hear these words here at church or maybe see them when we're reading our Bibles. But fellow Christian, fellow lover of Jesus, there probably aren't three other words that more clearly or fully or more beautifully capture the deep truth associated with our salvation than these words, redeemed, redemption, and redeemer. Why we don't use them very much, I'm not sure. Maybe it's because they sound a little bit old-fashioned. They're not contemporary enough for our modern tastes. Or, or maybe the reason that we don't use these words very much is because we really don't understand these words. The depth of them, the rich imagery that, that is behind them. And obviously it's hard to appreciate what you don't understand, what you're not aware of. And so for a few moments, let's acquaint ourselves with a precious part of our Christian vocabulary and then take these words with us to the hallowed ground of the communion table together. My prayer is that when we are done, the words redeemed, redemption, redeemer will find a more prominent place, not only in maybe your thinking, but possibly in our vocabulary as well. So on your note page, if you'll grab hold of that, if we trace our English words, redeemed or redemption, back to their roots, we would have to go clear back to a time well before the first century, well before the days of Jesus. And when we did that, we would eventually come upon a little Greek word, the word lutron. This Greek word meant, several centuries before Jesus, it meant to to let loose or to loosen something. Our word redeemed comes from this little word, lutron. It was used to speak of loosening a, a tight knot on a rope, for example, or, or when a soldier would loosen the straps on his armor, he would lutron the straps. And it was most often used when a prisoner was to be set free and the jailer loosened the bonds that held the prisoner's feet or hands over time. And this is very important as we trace the etymology or the development of this word, since it was often the case that a prisoner's release was made possible because of some payment price that had been worked out. The word lutron or redeemed came to mean the loosening or the freeing of a prisoner by the payment of a price. Now, by the time we get to the first century, Lutron, its meaning, has morphed even a little bit more. 
by Jesus' time, the writing of the New Testament, Lutron has found its way into the slave trade of the day. It no longer refers to prisoners or to convicts who are set free. Now it refers more to men and women and children who were to be bought off of the slave the block at the slave market for a particular price. We view the buying and selling of human beings as a vile and an extremely wicked thing, but it was an everyday common reality in the first century. There was just slaves, and they were bought and sold all the time, and every city had a slave market. The wealthy would go down to the slave market on set days, and one by one the slaves would be brought out, usually naked. They would be placed on a raised block in the marketplace. No different than an animal. The slave was viewed as no different than being an animal. The buyer and the seller would, would work out a price. And at that moment, when that had occurred, there was an announcement made that the slave had been lutroned. The slave had been redeemed, purchased for a price. So whenever we hear the words redeemed or redemption, or Redeemer, we want to be thinking instantly, oh, slaves bought off of the block for a price. Because that's the idea behind the word. And as that first century slave would step onto the block there in that dusty, noisy market, there was one all-consuming thought that pressed into every fiber of that slave's being. In fact, I would say it was probably more than just a thought. It was a prayer. It was a fervent prayer that the one who was purchasing them would be a good, a just, a kind redeemer. The slave's future was in that moment defined and determined by what kind of a redeemer had bought them. That was the reality of it. And it was this imagery of bondage and enslavement, helplessness, powerlessness, being bought for a price. That's what grips the minds of the New Testament writers as they reflected upon the love of God and his desire to bring salvation and forgiveness and new life to sinners through the death of his son, Jesus. The Holy Spirit gives the New Testament writers the word lutron, purchased at a price. Why? Slaves purchased at a price? Why? Why that word? Because the Bible says that every single person who does not have a, an authentic relationship, a real, genuine, personal, saving relationship with God through faith in Jesus is a slave to sin. That's what the Bible says. Did you know that? Without a personal faith relationship with Jesus, says the word of God, a person, no matter what they might think about themselves today, that person is a slave to a way of thinking and living that is opposed to God. Those persons have, who have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ have not bowed their hearts. They have not bowed their wills to God's authority. And they are, according to Scripture, slaves to sin. The Bible says our spiritual condition, condition, every single one of us at one time, was this way. We were all slaves to sin. Now, the last thing that you would want to do is take my word for that. The issues on the table are far too big 
for you to do that. But just check out a few passages from God's word that declare this truth and use this imagery of the slave and the purchase price and all of that. Check out a few verses with me. And there are many that we are not looking at. Here's just, a, here's just an example. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with Jesus so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be what, church? Slaves to sin. That implies that we were once what? Slaves to sin. Or how about Romans 6, 16? Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Same chapter, verse 19. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness. Galatians chapter 4, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were, say it, church, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. It is absolutely clear what life outside of faith in Jesus really is. It is slavery. And if you flip your note page over, the imagery of the slave to describe someone who does not have a faith relationship with Jesus becomes even more appropriate when we realize that in Jesus' day, a person ended up being a slave in one of three ways. You could be born into slavery, or you might become a slave by conquest, or you could become a slave by virtue of a debt that you owed and could not pay. There were thousands upon thousands of slaves in the first century who were slaves simply because they were born to slave parents. If your mother and father were slaves and then you were born into that family, man, you were automatically a slave. You were born a slave. But let's say that you dodged that fate and you were born free. But then a neighboring king in the country next to yours gets power hungry and he wants more land. And so he invades your country and he wins. You're about to become a slave by conquest. To the victor goes the spoils, as the old adage goes. And in the first century, a huge part of the spoils when a king conquered another country was the people of the country. And so the invading king, he would take you and he would bind you and he would march you back to his country so that you could be slaves for his people. The very thing happened like that to Israel, didn't it? In the Old Testament, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, he invades Israel and he carries off the Jews back to, Bab- back to Babylon. What does he do with them there? Well, he turns them into a nation of slaves for 70 years. And then a third way you might become a slave was through debt. If a person owed more than he could pay back, that person could be sold into slavery in order to pay back the debt that he owed. Now, take all of that and think for a moment how these three ways of becoming a slave parallel what our Bibles say about all of us. We were all born 
slaves to sin. Agreed? No exceptions? Not even one? Just Jesus only, right? Yeah. We were all born into a world with a nature that does not want to submit to God. We all do without any training, without any instruction, things that are the very opposite of what God would want for us, the very opposite of his will, the very opposite of what he knows is best for us, and we will want to do those things. And nobody teaches us that. We were born with a sin nature. We were born slaves to sin. You know, we could... We could actually, though the space won't accommodate this, we could all secretly sneak back to the nursery right now and watch this truth play itself out as one of our little toddlers tries to take a toy from another child in the room. Did mom and dad teach that? No. They, 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 taught, they try to teach the very opposite of that. They don't have to teach that. Why? Because every one of us is born a slave to sin. David will say this in, in Psalm 51.5 about himself. Surely I was sinful at what? At birth. Sinful from the time that my mother conceived me. He's speaking about the birthright of sin that was handed down to him by his mom and dad who got it from their mom and dad. And we can trace that birthright all the way back to Adam and Eve, can't we? And you and I got that from our moms and dads as well. We were born slaves to sin. Galatians 4.8 that we read a moment ago just affirms this one more time. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves. No exceptions. We were all slaves by birth. Only there's a double whammy here because we are also slaves by conquest. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul writes a church family very much, I believe, like Idlewell Bible Church family. And at one point he says this. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Who is Paul speaking about? He's talking about Satan here, isn't he? He's talking about Satan and his kingdom. The Holy Spirit, through Paul's pen, says, Hey, before Jesus came into your life, you were under the dominion, under the rulership of the kingdom of the air. That's Satan. All of us, he says, at one time, we lived as slaves under the authority of Satan. So we're slaves by conquest. And right now, this ruler, right now, is at work in the lives of every person in the world who does not know Jesus in saving faith. And then the double whammy becomes a triple whammy because we are also slaves by debt, aren't we? Romans 6.23, one of the most beautiful, powerful verses in all of Scripture. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We say amen for that. But Paul says every sin that we've ever committed, it pays a wage. The wage is not only physical death, it's spiritual death. And just as physical death separates us from this physical life, spiritual death separates us from a life with God. We owe a sin debt that we can never repay. 
And unless someone pays that debt for us, we die as slaves and we spend eternity as slaves. Fellow Christian, no wonder the Holy Spirit chose to use the analogy of slavery to help us to see our lives correctly and our need for Jesus. We're three times slave to sin and its devastating effects. We are three times under the dominating power of a ruthless master. And we cry out on the slave block, is there no one to redeem me? Is there no one who will buy me off this damning, condemning, eternally dark place called this block of sin? Who will do that for me? Is there anyone who will do that for me? I'm a slave to sin. By birth, by conquest, by debt. Is there anyone who will redeem me? And that's when, according to Scripture, God sends his son Jesus into this noisy, dusty, sin-choked slave market called our world. And God doesn't just simply send Jesus into the world so that we can watch the, so that he can watch the proceedings of the slaves being sold. He doesn't send Jesus into the world so that he can merely pity the horrible plight of the slaves. No, God sends Jesus into the slave market where we are but with one all-consuming intent. And that is that He might purchase, that He might redeem us to Himself. Do you believe it today, Christian? God comes into our world in the person of Jesus, puts on our flesh and says, it doesn't matter what it costs, I am going to redeem those who are dead in sin. Those who are slaves. To sin by birth, by conquest, and by death. He comes to redeem. He comes to set free, to liberate you and me. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, they declare this. Since the children have flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, too, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And what's the next word? Free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And we say, Amen and Amen. We can never think of the words redeemed or redemption or the word redeemer and not think about the cost. Redemption is a meaningless term without us understanding the price that was paid to secure our redemption off of the slave block. The price is the death of Jesus. The death of the Son of God. It is virtually impossible to turn to a passage in the New Testament that speaks about the redeeming work of Jesus and not find mention made, above all else, of the incredible price paid by God, by Jesus, to redeem us. It seems to be that aspect of our salvation that that the Holy Spirit wants us to know above everything else. Here's what it cost to redeem you. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 again. These two verses tell us that God was willing to pay the greatest price ever paid for anything. He was willing to pay that price for you and for me. 
For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from that empty way of life handed down to you from your parents, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The most costly price imaginable is what our redemption demanded. And God the Father and Jesus the Son said, we'll pay it. The precious blood Pure, spotless, undefiled by sin, holy, holy, holy blood of the Lamb of God. That's the price that the Father's holiness and His justice required to secure our spiritual freedom. As the Lord Jesus hung upon the cross and as the soldiers in the crowd looked upon Him and they saw the blood of Jesus as it fell to the ground in these great crimson drops, Could anyone have begun to imagine the value of that blood? Not silver, not gold, not good works, not charitable donations, not church attendance, or a thousand other religious things that people do to try to win God's approval. None of that purchases our redemption. The book of Isaiah says those things are like filthy rags to a holy God. Nothing can purchase forgiveness of sin and freedom from sin's enslaving condemnation except the lifeblood sacrifice of Jesus. He came into the marketplace of our world and on Calvary he laid down the payment by laying down himself. Mark chapter 10 verse 45, Jesus says concerning himself, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a what, church? As a ransom for many. Now, guess what Greek word Jesus chooses for ransom in this? Lutron. It's the word lutron. Have you ever pondered what you are worth to God? You are so valued by God. You are so prized by him that he is willing to give you the most costly possession that he has, which is himself. He gives you himself. How can any Christian have a self-image problem when you know that God paid the most incredible, expensive price for you that anything has ever been paid for before? How could you ever have a self-image problem when God bought you with himself? In the book of Revelation chapter 5, there is captured for us a scene in heaven. It's yet future, but I will tell you now, if you know Jesus, you're going to be a part of this scene. It's a scene in which the residents of heaven fall on their faces in worship before the Lord Jesus, and they sing a song. You are going to sing this song if you are in Jesus Christ. Part of the song goes like this. Revelation 5, 9. Jesus... With your blood, you purchased, you redeemed us for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. With your blood, cries out heaven. With your blood. It's the purchase price. It's the only price that can buy a sinner off the slave block. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Could it be any more plain than it is here? We'll put it on the screen for you. In him we have, what's the next word? Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he what? He lavished. Don't you love that word? 
That is a great, great word. He lavished on us. And we could go on and on with the verses. But the fact is that no matter how long we spent trying to grasp the immensity of the cost of our redemption, the price that Jesus and the Father paid, we would never begin to even scratch the surface. Eternity will not be enough time for us to understand the cost of our redemption. And yet, brothers and sisters, even though all that we have shared concerning our redemption, it's it's mind-blowing and it's wonderful, there is something lingering in the background, a question that until that question gets answered for us, we will not be able to truly rest in the richness and the security of this redemption that God has secured for us. And the question is, could I ever go back and be on the slave block again? Back to the, to the enslavement of sin? Could, could, could that happen to me? Is there any chance that I could do something that would jeopardize my redemption, that would cause the Father to withdraw His price or make Jesus take back His ransom payment paid for me? Could I find myself a slave again? Until I know the answer to that question, I cannot rest. You may want to find Galatians 3.13. In your Bible, we'll put it on the screen as well. Paul writes about our redemption in Jesus, and this is what he says, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Once again, it is not hard to see the emphasis here on the the price that Jesus paid for our redemption. He endures the wrath of God for us. Sin's curse, if you will, upon the cross. But what I would ask you to focus on for a moment is the word redeemed here. The Apostle Paul carefully chooses another little Greek word that we also translate into English as redeemed, but it's different from the word lutron. Purchased for a price, slaves bought off the mark, off the, off the block. That's lutron. Here in Galatians 3.13, Paul uses another Greek word. It's the little Greek word exagorazo. Now, agorazo means to purchase or to buy or to redeem. Exagorazo means to purchase or redeem something so that it can never be returned. To put it another way, the Holy Spirit moves the Apostle Paul to choose the word ex agorazo because the emphasis here is upon the result or the effect of Jesus' redeeming work. When Jesus redeemed us out from under the curse of sin, we were purchased so completely, we were redeemed so effectively that we can never ever be returned to the slave market again. Ex agorazo. How does that make you feel? Secure? (laughs) It means to buy out, to purchase out of for good. And that's the truth here. That's the precision of Holy Scripture. Ours is a redemption that is so complete, so thoroughly effective, it will never allow us to be returned to the slave market again. Can you imagine how precious 
this truth would have been to those who were so familiar with the slavery system of Paul's day. We don't connect with this like they would have. In Paul's day, it was well known and it was very common for a slave owner to to buy a slave and at any time, for any reason, return that slave back to the auction block and sell that slave to a new owner. Maybe a slave owner had a slave that he had purchased as a young man and and now this slave is growing older and he can't produce like he once did. and, And so instead of being gentle and understanding with an aging slave, he simply turns him back over to the slave block to get what he can out of him. Doesn't care. That done, the slave might be bought by another master who would demand even more from the slave in hopes of getting some return on his investment before the slave was so used up he was worthless. And in the end, that slave's life is worse than his beginning was. Christian, when Jesus redeemed us, when he redeemed you, when he redeemed me, he redeemed us in such a way that we never, ever have to fear returning to that former sin bondage again. We have been bought out of ex agarazzo, out of the slave market, and we will never be returned to it again. Never. Say it with me. Never. Never. That's our redemption. That's what it means to be redeemed by Jesus. On your note page, I can't help but think of the words of Jesus, our Redeemer, in John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. How does that make you feel? Secure! Right? No one and no thing can ever take me back to that slave market again. I have been ex agarazzoed. I have been lutroned. I've been redeemed. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12 says, Jesus entered the most holy place once for all by his holy blood, having obtained what? Eternal redemption. How do you like that word? Eternal redemption. Jesus didn't come and obtain for us a temporary redemption. We're not going back to that slave block. It's an eternal redemption. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive by the Spirit. Jesus is never going to die again for sin. He's paid the price and he's paid it in full. Once for all. Romans 6.22 But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you you reap leads to holiness. And the result is what? Eternal life. Not temporary life. We're not going back. Ever. To that wretched slave market. That's the bottom line. The price has been paid for our redemption. It is complete. It is certain. And it is secure. And that will never ever change for you. Do you believe it? 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. One more time. In fact, church family, having shared all this together, let's, let's read this together. And let's see if it, if it feels maybe just even a little bit different for you. Knowing what you now know, let's read it aloud together. 
For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And IBC family says, Amen. Amen. And it is with this glorious truth that we are brought right up to the threshold of the table of remembrance this morning. All of these truths about our redemption brings us to this place where we get to remember the body of Jesus hanging on the cross and and his blood being spilled out as the redemption price that was paid for you and me. Jesus instituted this, this memorial that we're about to share. This is his idea. And his command was, those who put their faith in me, I never, ever want them to forget the redemption price that was paid. And so when we do this together as a church family, we do it regularly to remember the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus and the cost of our redemption and the security of it as well. If you know Jesus this morning, this table is yours. Jesus is inviting you to this table. He would ask you to examine your life, take inventory of how you've been doing life with him, and then come and celebrate his redemption in this way. If you don't know Jesus yet as your personal Savior, you you haven't made that decision whether you really want Jesus to redeem you. You're still kind of working that through. I would just encourage you not to partake of the table because it, it really wouldn't be meaningful to you. It's not... It's not Jesus' blood and his body that have bought you yet. But if you don't know him, today's the day. Now's the time to be redeemed. Yeah? And you can do that right from where you're seated. Make that your first priority. Tell Jesus, I'm a slave to sin. Liberate me. Free me. I believe in you. I believe what you've done, and you did it for me. Redeem me. This is our time to honor Jesus as our Redeemer. I'll ask those who are going to help to serve you if they would come forward to serve you the elements now. If when you receive them, if you'll hold them, we'll partake of them together. Let's pray. Sacred moments, Lord Jesus, hallowed ground. We do not come to this moment lightly. We do not come to your table carelessly. You do call us to examine ourselves that we would not partake in this moment and, and in some way bring a reproach upon ourselves. We are all guilty of sin. We all sin every day. Your blood covers that. And so thankful are we for that truth. Let us rejoice in you now as we take the bread and the cup and lift up you, declaring that you're our Redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen.
Jesus was gathered with his disciples in the upper room on the night before his crucifixion. They shared a meal together, and at that meal, Jesus took the bread that was on the table, and he blessed it, and he, and he turned it into a memorial. And he said, this is going to be a reminder to you and to all who follow you, believing in me, a reminder to you of my body, which is the redemption price for your freedom from slavery to sin. And though Jesus did not say it this way, he certainly could have, using the words of First Peter 1, 18 and 19, he could have said, For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, but with my precious blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus took up the cup that was also on the table. He blessed it. He passed it amongst his disciples. And he said to them, this is the new covenant, the new arrangement between God and sinful man. New covenant in my blood. It's the payment price. And though Jesus didn't say it this way, he certainly could have said, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed but with my precious blood. Do this in remembrance of me. What do we say, Lord Jesus? What do we say as a redeemed community except thank you, thank you, thank you? We thank you for our redemption. We thank you for the price that has been paid. We thank you for our freedom. We thank you that we're never going back. Ever. To the slave block of sin. How we thank you. For this precious word redemption. And for you as our redeemer. And all God's people said. Amen and amen.